Now you see, this is what I get for betting on my own hometown ball team. I ought to have better sense. Wouldn't hurt if you had a better hometown. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 163, Back to Cole's Choice. What are we talking about today, Padna? We are talking about The Last Picture Show from 1971, and that's directed by Peter Bogdanovich and adapted from Larry McMurtry's novel of the same name. It stars Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges, Ben Johnson, Cloris Leachman, Ellen Burstyn, Eileen Brennan, Randy Quaid, lantern favorite Clue Gulliger, and Sybil Shepard. And significantly, there is production design and costume design by Polly Platt. It is about a couple of high school seniors and best friends, one dating the prettiest girl in town and one about to embark upon an affair with the coach's wife as they begin to consider what the rest of their lives are going to be and whether those lives will take place in their dead-end town. And when I say dead-end town, I am not kidding. In stark black and white, we are introduced visually to Anarene, Texas. And this is a town that appears ready to just dry up and blow away. Now we visit towns like this here around Austin, maybe not quite in such steady decline, but I love these towns like this. I love their physical layout. You've got the courthouse in the center and the square that the entire town's life is built around, or at least it used to be. There's frequently a movie theater, so you know we love that. It's either still in operation, or at least there's the remnants of the building you can tell from the marquee. So how much of a difference do you feel like it makes in terms of getting a handle on life in Anarene that you feel familiar with this kind of geography? Meaning me specifically. Yes. So I still feel like this is a world away from my existence, though like you said, we've been through similar areas, and one of my relatives lives in Roswell, New Mexico, which is the home of perpetual dust storms, basically. What struck me the most, though, is that personally me, and I'd love to hear your opinion about this as an Okie, I cannot reconcile the visual of a major dust storm with what appears to be really cold weather. Am I the only one that feels that way? It might as well be on Mars. It seems like if you see dust, it should be hot. Uh, you have clearly not spent enough time on the prairie yet, if it's that's the true. case. It's true, yeah. Well, and I think that you might also be forgiven for thinking that this takes place during the Great Depression, because yeah. it seems like <laughs> the Dust Bowl never left. So the question for me is, why do people choose to live here? Before we get into that much larger question, though, I'm so glad that you mentioned Polly Platt because she's a big deal for me. We mentioned her as a producer way back when for Say Anything, and she left an indelible mark on this film. It was her idea to take down the E in the Texaco sign. I don't know if you knew that. And you can see that in the design all the way down to the other girls who are not JC. It's this approximation of beauty and style that they're trying to achieve, but it's just so much dingier and lanker. Well, for me, when we go these places, these towns, they feel a little bit like a throwback or maybe a bit of a time capsule. It's really easy to imagine the Main Street USA culture that we just don't have as much of anymore when we are walking those sidewalks the way they are laid out just for that purpose. But I think Anarene is obviously an extreme example. We know that visually right away. It has gone beyond time capsule because that would imply that things are being maintained for posterity in some way, which is not happening here. Or that somebody's going to come along and dig it back out, and I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, this is a ghost town, essentially. It's just that the ghosts are all still walking around. But there is one thing that does inject life uniformly into the town, and that is high school football. Let's talk a little bit about Texas high school football because it is a way of life. No exaggeration. 
Our two main protagonists, Sonny and Dwayne, they begin the film basically suffering the slings and arrows of virtually every citizen they encounter because of their monumentally poor performance on the gridiron the night before. Every old-timer in the cafe is literally disgusted with them. They can barely stand to look at them. And it comes up later to say that you weren't even in the backfield is about the most cutting insult that you could hurl during a lover's quarrel. And, as in our opening scene, Abilene suggests to Sam the Lion that it wouldn't hurt if he had a better hometown so he might have a better class of football team. Now, I'm from Oklahoma, and we're kind of cousins with Texas in that way, so I grew up with a similar emphasis placed upon it, but nothing quite like I experienced when I got here. I know it couldn't possibly have exactly the same significance, but was it a similarly big thing for you when you were growing up in Virginia or Idaho? It was and it wasn't, but I had the same culture shock when I came here. I didn't have any concept of that Friday night lights culture, which it very much is. And then I remember at one point I was working for the Red Cross and there was some sheltering event happening at a local high school and they still had to have Friday night football. I would say the closest to this is in Virginia and it's very much a legacy kind of thing. If you've ever heard somebody say, now, who's your daddy? Not as in, who's your daddy? But <laughs> as in, did your daddy go to Lord Botetot or Cave Spring? Oh, and your brother played at blah, 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 blah. I have heard that all the time. So people definitely are invested in those local high school games. But my parents weren't football people. So I didn't really have a leg in that world but I've heard all of my uncles talking about it and everybody's parents. Idaho didn't really have a feel for that kind of thing because mainly we were losers except for that one BSU streak, which was pretty incredible. Your neighbors in Utah and BYU stole all your thunder, basically. Yeah, northern Idaho had more going on, so it just really wasn't that big of a thing. Well, back to the movie. The big discovery for me the first time I saw this was hands down Timothy Bottoms. I love this kid. I love this character of Sonny so much. They describe it typically as being about a group of teens, but this is really Sonny's story. He's the heart and soul of the story, at least for me. Is it the same for you? For sure. And I was surprised when I was glancing through more about Larry McMurtry's work, and especially that this is part of the Dwayne series. Yeah, I was quote, surprised. Unquote. Yeah, I can't believe it. Because Sonny is in practically every single frame, but at the same time, he's not the sun upon which every other character orbits. So, like you said, he's at the heart, but he's not this blinding, flashy center. And I think if you think about it, that is a pretty neat trick to pull off. Yeah, I was similarly surprised as you when I go down the list of the books that come in the rest of that series. There are five of them all together, and by the time we get to the second one, by the time we get to Texasville, Sonny is a peripheral character. It really knocked me back when I realized that, and I guess that could be betraying my bias just because I relate to Sonny so much. Well, do you have any other introductory observations about the rest of the ensemble? Absolutely, and... Like I said, it is incredible to think about how everyone gets a full story in this film, and yet somehow we're with Sonny the whole time. I mean, everyone in this is the absolute best from start to finish. Though, even though I like her in this, Sybil Shepherd to me is just distracting because I find her to be humorless in real life. If you watch any of the behind-the-scenes reflections, or if you read the really good oral history on this, she says over and over that coming in, she was supposed to be this great beauty. And she says it sarcastically, but you know she carries that around like a badge of honor. Anyway, I'm going to get off my beef with Sybil Shepherd. I just want to hug Sam. I want to hug Billy. I want to hug Ruth. Everyone is fantastic in this. Yeah, they did some pretty canny things i think with some of this character development and the thing that's at the top of that list for me is making jeff bridges unlikable our fair-haired golden boy he is a little bit craven and a lot hot-headed and he gives me this feeling of cheap and hollow meanness all the time and i think that's perfect does he i guess i don't feel that strongly about him to the negative i mean he seems pretty human especially when we get to some scenes much later on 
Maybe you haven't grown up with enough people like this, I think. I guess maybe I'm not. seeing my cousins in here maybe a little bit. It is occurring at a pivotal time, too, because we are right at that tipping point where you can't write this stuff off as kid stuff anymore. You carry this much further, and this just becomes who you are. That's a really good point, because Sam has got that great line about, I've been around trashy behavior like this, and I guess I don't think about it with Dwayne, but I must be giving him a pass too much. Maybe because it's Jeff Bridges, and he's just so innately likable. He does have that cherubic face, and that's exactly why I think it's such a great thing that they make him, at least for me, a little bit dastardly. And he's such an excellent opposite number to Sonny and his sensibilities. And then Eileen Brennan, she's so underrated here with that sly look on her face all the time. Eileen Brennan is underrated in everything all the time. And I think we can both agree that Cloris Leachman is the real MVP here. She sure is. And I want to mention Ellen Burstyn, though, too. Again, if you look at that oral history, she's got some wonderful things to say about how she chose the pieces that she wears. She went for things that feel good, that feel good against your skin. And that's all her work with Polly Platt, too. And I think that that's two consummate professionals coming together. And also, I just want you and I to make a video of me as Abilene and you as Sam so I can just <laughs> stare at you and chalk my cue. Well, like I was just saying about Jeff Bridges' character, they're actually all on a threshold here. Can you imagine this feeling of being 17 and already resigned that this is going to be the rest of your life? I know that some of that is part and parcel of adolescent territory, but in this case, this is not just melodramatic, angsty teen exaggeration. It is the very real potential byproduct of growing up in one of these towns, and I speak from experience. Yeah, the town has to be at least 90% of it, because what other models do you have except people who are ancient by 40 and dead by 53, or absent like your dad? And I mean Sonny's dad, not your dad. <laughs> what do you have to look forward to? And do these kids just exist to be those people that we hear talking later about the best years being so far behind them? And we look back on that and think, why? What do we have to look forward to is a great question. Because even stuff that at 17 should be exciting and fun, like making out in the truck, has lost any sense of that spark. Sonny and Charlene... Their encounter that we see after they leave the movie theater, it has nothing but the air of ritual about it. You do this to me, I do this to you, I put my gum in the same place on the dashboard every time. Everything and everyone, even at this young age, seems to be suspended in amber, or worse, I guess. This makes amber seem glamorous. Because I remember years ago when you went with me to Roanoke, Virginia, place that I grew up, and you talked about looking around, and it seemed preserved in amber. It seemed like we were looking at it through sepia tones. To me, that was lovely and kind of romantic. That's not what this town is. Would you agree? I would agree. And we're reminded of that actually later in a scene where Sonny is now on the sidelines at a football game. They graduated the previous year, but it feels like it's been so much longer than that. And it might as well be. That's the weight that settles down on you in Anarene. To be 18 or 19 and feel like you're already in the autumn of your life and all that's left, if you have that much left, is now a couple of decades of what seems like eternal winter. But I want to come back to something that you said you were going to get off of, but I think we have a little more to talk about. While we were watching this, you said that you wanted to ask me specific things about Sybil Shepherd. And I think you're right on the money with your assessment that you made a few minutes ago. The thing I keep coming back to with her is what motivates the humorless. I do feel like she's a perfect choice in this case because I feel like everything she does, like JC, is performative. And it all comes clear, the example that I typically use is when you watch her on that Comedy Central roast of Bruce Willis. I see nothing except someone who is propped up there because a publicist said, this is a great opportunity to not seem like such a stiff, when all it does is completely verify that she is a stiff and has no sense of humor about any of these things about herself. Now, all that being said, do you still find JC sometimes 
sympathetic when that facade drops for a moment when she exposes that confused kid underneath? Absolutely. I really like this character. I like her incredibly difficult-to-play mix of true innocence that we see a number of times and naivete while wanting to grow up and be sophisticated. I think Sybil Shepard plays it well, especially I love the elopement part. I think she really shines there. Sybil Shepard is a humorless crud. I don't know what her problem is, <laughs> but whatever. But also, JC reminds me quite a lot of the character Isabel in The Razor's Edge. What she wants, no one is equipped to give her. I think where she really shines is in contrast to Ellen Burstyn. I love the dynamic of Ellen Burstyn as the tree and Sybil Shepard as the apple. And Lois is simultaneously encouraging JC's best and worst impulses somehow. And she does have the right read on her daughter, I think, in general, and especially about her potential life with Dwayne. Yeah, Lois is an incredibly self-aware and savvy character, but that doesn't necessarily make her a great mentor. <laughs> nor happy. I wanted to bring up one thing that I really like early on. We have a great visual juxtaposition that happens with poetry class and then PE, cutting one to the other. I think it really speaks volumes about how in a town like this, perceptions might not always be what they seem. You cut from John Hillerman, Natalie dressed, talking to the kids about the interior life and art to the sweaty, manly P.E. class run by the coach and his spit cup, <laughs> I can easily see Hillerman's character being looked at a little sideways by some of these crusty old ranchers based on what they would see as less-than-masculine manner and pursuits. And then meanwhile, it turns out it's the coach that is likely living as a closeted gay man based on the hints we pick up here and there. Is that how you read it, too? The first time it didn't really occur to me, but now it reminds me of the freaks and geeks bit with the coach who likes to touch butts. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder, though, when you look at all of these people, is anyone over 40 in this whole crew actually having sex with their own spouse? No, it's part of the town charter. I think it's even mentioned in the school song how that never happens. That's probably a good point. Well, the aforementioned coach, he sets it up for Sonny to drive his wife to her doctor's appointment. Did you get any sense that it was critical that the catalyst for their affair might specifically be a health issue? Was whatever the doctor said motivating in some way, either a last straw or a cumulative effect, or was it just something coincidental? I think that's such an interesting question. So here's what I was running through my head. Do you think it's that she can no longer have children? Or that the doctor said at this point, also given hints from the coach, that whatever is happening to her is all in her head? Or do you think the doctor showed some empathy to her and suggested maybe you can still have fun, you're still a woman? And so that's what motivates what happens. Because I also wonder, how do you think that Sonny knew at that moment to move toward Ruth? Funny that you bring that up, because I think all of this exposes exactly how much relationships are simply based on proximity rather than true desire for someone. And convenience, essentially. And how long do you imagine that it's been since Ruth has had anything to look forward to in her life? The night before her senior prom. That was it. That was the last moment where anything good could possibly happen, and then she woke up to the truth the next day. And you mentioned Sonny knowing to lean in sort of instinctively. I think it's notable that you could argue that what is likely the most romantic moment of the film takes place while they hover over a garbage can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it reminds me of what you said about Vagabond, though. It's not a downbeat experience to watch it. At least, well, okay, maybe it is. Well, speaking of downbeat experiences, let's talk a little bit about one of the pivotal episodes here with Billy. Do you have specific thoughts on this episode with Billy and the sex worker when some of the local boys, including Sonny and Dwayne, take him to lose his virginity? It seems so unbelievably cruel, and I just can't figure out why that lady is so mad, or I guess why everybody is so mad. Nothing happens fast enough or slow enough or at the right time, whatever. 
So where are any of the examples of sex being life-affirming, or at least fun, for any possible second? Yeah, like I said, not coming from a town like this, you may not know this as well as I do, even though this is kind of a universal idea. Bad things happen when dimwits get bored. I know that statement that I made in Vagabond, expecting the country to somehow be more friendly and welcoming, I am getting that thrown in my face constantly. This is just sordid and sad, like you said. And it's important that it's one of two times that Sonny knows what's happening is wrong, but he doesn't have the strength yet to do what's right and stop this or change the course. And then they bring Billy back and Sam just lays down the law. When he says you didn't even have the decency to wash his face, it just breaks my heart. And then Dwayne, this is the first time I have the biggest clue about what I was saying about his character. Tellingly, he is a coward. And he slinks down in the car so that his pool hall privileges will not be revoked. Yeah, it's the pass that I'm giving him. At the same time, he, like you said, is a coward. So he's not actively being terrible. He's actively being a coward. And that's just as bad. Well, shifting back to a relationship that at least has some positive potential. Let me ask you this. Do you think that the coach anticipated... Sonny and Ruth's tryst when he set this up. Is this a way just to keep her busy, a trade-off so that he has license to pursue what he's into? I don't know that he gets to pursue what he's into, especially at this time. I mean, I definitely thought he was okay with keeping her busy. Though when Ruth says, you know, what if he found out about us? She says he would shoot us. I don't know that I believe that unless it were to save face or he thought that's what he had to do. But kind of like with everybody, I don't know that he gets to really fulfill his lust. That's a lot of trips out of town you're making in 1951, if that's what you're after. You do have the big town, Wichita Falls is 20 miles away. But now Sonny and Ruth's first experience, let's look at that a little bit. There's no eye contact. She insists on that as this is happening. So Sonny's episode of losing his virginity, I don't know that it's that much better than Billy's when it comes down to it, though it grows into something better. The thing that I'm left with is kind of in the aftermath of this. He's just not cut out for life in this town, and to me that's demonstrated here by the fact that Sonny is examining Ruth and the coach's relationship maybe more than she ever has, just in the span of an afternoon. She says, I wasn't brought up to leave my husband. It doesn't seem to me like that sort of thing would satisfy Sonny's soul. He has an innate curiosity that just won't serve him well in Anarene in the long run. All that these sorts of towns are made to do is grind that instinct out of you. Yeah, it's in the town charter like you mentioned. Also apparently in the town charter is everyone being in everyone else's business because at a later trip to the cafe when Sonny goes by, Genevieve is trying to tell him that his secret romance is not so secret but I don't think he's catching on to that completely quite yet. And I must say it is a very 17 year old way that he's not understanding. I love the way that you see that register, but not register in his face in a very adolescent style. And then of course, Sam comes in and catches him at the cafe and grants him a reprieve from being banned from all his establishments because he knows Sonny is the good one. Now to my mind, this is the best performance that Ben Johnson ever gave. And Interestingly, initially he didn't want to do it. Bogdanovich had to actually call John Ford to call Ben Johnson and persuade him to be in this movie. Yeah, he says just too many words in the script. And there are a lot of Ben Johnson performances to look at, but yeah, this has got to be the best. I haven't seen them all, but this is easily his best character as well. Well, speaking of a whole lot of words... Sam takes Billy and Sonny on a little fishing trip here, and this is just a monumental scene in my personal canon, at least, and I know a lot of film lovers worldwide. Johnson's monologue here is just a killer, tinged with regret, and it gets right at the heart of what the movie is ultimately about. Not just the fact that time is passing you by, but how you take that and what you do with it. It was after my wife had lost her mind and my boys was dead. When he says that, every time it just rattles my bones, it hurts so much. And then we have that camera pushing in as he begins this reverie so we can regard everything in his face. The push in and push out motif that's used a number of times in the film, that's my absolute 
favorite thing. Yeah, it makes you physically feel how the memory recedes as the camera recedes in this case. Now, how old is Ben Johnson here? 53. Yeah, that's just a couple of years older than I am right now. So it starts to sting a little bit more than when I saw this when I was 25. And he's reminiscing about this girl that was so wild and beautiful, but she was already married. But that memory is always going to be here. And if the light hits it just right, we can feel just like we did on that day. Now, clinging to things like this, do we ever really admit to ourselves that we're old, do you think? Probably we don't, except in our saddest moments. But my favorite observation about that idea, though, is that instead of being old, we're just as prepared to act crazy with passion given the chance. Yeah, you keep that eternal flame alive, even if it's just the smallest flicker. That's not ridiculous. It's being an old, decrepit bag of bones. That's what's ridiculous. And then soon after that, we are treated to another bit of Ben Johnson's genius here. It's that scene where he is sizing both of them up as Sonny and Dwayne are leaving for Mexico. It's just something else. I know it doesn't get as much attention and it's not as widely regarded as that monologue that I was just talking about, but I think this may be an even better piece of acting. Just watch him as he is looking back and forth between them, and in the blink of an eye, we feel the full force of his affection for Sonny and the distrust he has for Dwayne at the same time, and rightly so. Even if I didn't know anything else about these two kids, everything I need to know happens right there in just a few seconds, so I understand completely who these boys are. When I look at what is happening in Sam's head, I like to think, that he's questioning whether he knows for sure that he's going, or more, that they will never see him again, that Sonny will never have him again. I see that register there too, and I also see it register, he's got to let him go. Ultimately, Sam knows the value of the folly of youth, and you have to let them live and learn. And when they come back and they find out what's happened, that Sam has died, Every time I watch this, it makes my body just feel like a tree trunk, like I've become just completely solid and heavy. And then we can deduce from the funeral that Ellen Burstyn is the one that has that silver dollar that Sam was talking about. And it makes me so goddamn mad every time I watch this that Sam's story is over. So ultimately what I have to do here is I think about what sets apart the characters that we like. Sam, Ruth... Genevieve, Lois maybe to a slightly lesser extent. What they have in common is that, unlike every other adult in this world, they exhibit genuine care for these kids. They're not punishing them for being young. And I think that dividing line is something that we're just talking about. Maybe they're more like the kids in that they manage to keep a sliver of their dream alive somehow. And I think that we do genuinely like them, Lois included, because I think that they do care for each other. This core group that they have continued on, and there's love and affection there. There's looking out for each other. I think, though, that they do expect something of the kids, and it's probably what they should have expected of themselves. And they've got these long memories because that's all there is to have. So they either live vicariously through them or they kind of see them as their own avatars, putting a little pressure on them, maybe unfairly? Yes, all of those things. Wishing for something else for them, but knowing how this stuff might play out. Well, let's talk about the music for a little bit here. Yeah, another thing that just breaks your heart <laughs> the yeah. whole time. Hank Williams is such a brilliant choice for this, I think. I always thought of him as a bit of a ghost that was just walking around. Even appearance-wise, he looks like a bit of a wraith. In the music itself, this is the most lonesome, haunted soundtrack that you could muster for a story like this. For more reasons than one, just the quality of the music itself, obviously, but this is set in 1951, and Hank Williams died on New Year's Day 1953, and Sonny and Duane take their trip to Mexico over New Year's Eve weekend exactly a year earlier, and when they come back, Sam's dead. It all sort of ties together for me in that kind of cursed way. Does this evoke similar feelings for you, or is this just more music nerd stuff that I'm feeling on my end? I would have to be made of stone not to feel <laughs> the same way when I hear this music from the very start. And I do want to point out that in 1971, 
this was still a relatively new thing to do to make up your soundtrack of all pop songs. Think about Scorsese in 1967 doing it, and then this film. Now, I am not such a Hank Williams expert, so I'm going to defer to you on this one. It seems to me, though, that each selection is perfect. Would you agree with that? More than perfect. And they actually do the perfect thing by having something absent. Your cheating heart would have been too on the nose for this. And so I think leaving that off when that actually may be the song that you're dying to hear leaves you with that unreconciled, uncomfortable feeling too. So the things they pick are perfect and the things they didn't pick are also perfect. In the actual songs that are in the story, these songs are life in this town boiled down to three minutes. There's nothing to do, so you get in trouble, you make some mistakes, and then you start all over again with the next tune on the jukebox. I could see Hank Williams being in the back of that car and hiding from Sam so he doesn't lose his privileges, but also feeling pretty smug with himself. He seems like Dwayne a little bit. Well, back to boredom causing that trouble. We referred to this briefly before. It's boredom that opens the door to that trouble. And one of the primary ways that these characters address that boredom here is through the various avenues of sexual discovery that all of them are fumbling their way through. You brought this up earlier. What exactly do you make of the fact that so much of what they find is confusing or unsatisfying or a source of disillusionment? I would love any of them to experience something in life that isn't transactional or causes them to feel shame. What I think they all need is a good dose of 1950s European sex. Get some of those movies in at the movie theater and open their eyes. Because even if Lois points out, quite rightly, that it's not always magic, they need to see that it can be great. Yeah, because none of them are getting that here. When Dwayne fails to perform the first time, I think it's indicative of what JC thinks of him in that he's now what she regards as the second annoying child whose face she's thrown her underwear in. She's completely infantilized him with that gesture. And then a darker facet of all this curiosity is obviously explored with this episode with the preacher's boy and the little girl. The image that hits me the absolute hardest in that scene is when that little girl is following the crowd back to the cars like she's just an afterthought, like they have practically forgotten she is there. It reminds me of what I was saying earlier about the coach and this idea that he would shoot Ruth and Sonny if he found out. It's this concept that it's not the people that matter, it's somehow the act, and it's all about saving face. And it also reminds me of what I was talking about with Dwayne. So many people in town want to give this boy a pass because he didn't get far enough. So it's a sort of boys will be boys or he'll grow out of it. It's just a really toxic environment. Yeah, it's that moment that makes me wonder, what is all this hue and cry really about? And I think what the movie is telling us is that there's all this underbelly. And if I wasn't sure about it before, I am now. There's this inescapable message that we may be idealizing things when we look back fondly at this time. Maybe it was never that great. Maybe we need to let it slip away. And even my favorite, he's not perfect either. Because meanwhile, you have Sonny still struggling with his own immaturity. He doesn't have the nerve to face Ruth when Dwayne hurts his eye and puts him in the hospital. And then he betrays her with JC in this elopement. JC is just the worst. What do you think the 1951 equivalent of Instagram clout is? Because that's all she's doing this for. I brought this up earlier. Do you remember, did you have a school song? Absolutely no memory of it. Couldn't tell you what it was, if we had one or not. I know that we did, and I know that my mother probably knows it, but my instinct to get out and never look back kept me from ever bothering to learn it. One thing that really hit me hard in this too, Lois, she's commiserating with Sonny after this ill-fated marriage, and she says, well, Oklahoma's not much of an improvement. Uh, you know both places. Do you think it's actually less of an improvement? At this point, yes. She's definitely right about it not being a step up. I can tell you that. Because like I say, I did grow up in one of these towns, literally almost the exact same population, only off by a couple hundred. One stoplight at the main intersection in town that flashes red in all directions. And I left as soon as I could with the full intention of never going back even to visit unless absolutely necessary. Now, I love the friends that I made during that time. That 
like the core group here, is what was important to me, but it had nothing to do with the town because that place has been dying since even before I was born, I feel like. I mentioned in the very beginning that it looks like anarene could dry up and blow away. I remember one evening at a town hall meeting that sort of addresses all these things we've been talking about so far when the father of a friend of mine stood up and said that without football, our little town would just dry up and blow away. That's a direct quote from Jimmy Dale Hunter. I can tell you I was there, I heard it, still rings in my head to this day. And I, at a salty 17, I stood up in front of the whole town and said that if that was the case, then maybe we should let that happen. The local scout leader, Ross Vinson, stood up and applauded me. The only adult in the room on my side, that's because my parents weren't actually at that meeting. Why were you at the meeting? To cause trouble. I was going to say, was it specifically to address that issue? Yes. So basically the whole town was there, minus my parents, like I said, because like yours, they're not football people exactly either. And I can tell you, it is a weird feeling as a young man in that moment thinking, are the scout leader and I about to have to fight the whole town right here in the Clark Bohart building? Please tell me that happened. I would love to tell you I at least threw a chair, but no, everybody settled down. Well, what was the vote? Was there a quorum? What happened? Well, of course the football team stayed. And they've since gone on to do very well, I think, going to or winning state in our class one or two years in the 30, 40 years since I've been there. That line, winning state, that could apply to anything, anywhere, and it is so American, it almost makes me feel good and bad at the same time. Because that could be your debate team, your glee club, your football team, whatever. Funny you should mention that, because when I was watching it this time, I was feeling exactly how much it's an extremely American film. And Bogdanovich is among the most American of filmmakers, whatever you think of that designation. Obviously, Golden Age Hollywood, that houses his most deeply felt influences. And he tips that hand because when he submitted his ballot for the Sight and Sound poll in 1972, for instance, there were only four names on it for 10 films. Howard Hawks, John Ford, Orson Welles, and the by then virtually Americanized Alfred Hitchcock. And then when I think of the connection that this has to movies, it makes me aware that this idea of the vanishing West, it's not just cowboys. It also can be expanded to include Hollywood too. The last movie they go see, Red River, it makes me aware of the contrast of how this movie portrays the West, and then that type of old-fashioned movie myth-making. And then, back to the theater itself, something that I think really hits us, this idea of shuttering the movie theater. I can't imagine losing that if I live in this town in 1951. Because what else is there to do? Yeah, if I'm Sonny, this theater would have been a lifeline to me. And then the title alone of this is one of those things that captures our imagination as moviegoers. The idea of the last picture show literally touches something inside me when I think about the meaning of that phrase. And then there's a lot to be said about how this illustrates the difference between the safe darkness of the theater and then the real world waiting just outside those doors. The power that movies have, it acts as a restorative to Duane and Sonny's relationship here. When Sonny is looking over Charlotte's shoulder during their kiss and he's watching Liz Taylor, you talked about this in a different way when it comes to the costumes of the other girls in town, cinema being representative of the unattainable. It's got to be aspirational for them. It's the only beauty that they can look to. Yeah, it's just everything, the movie theater. It's one of those things that we share and I think a lot of people listening do as well, this feeling that when the lights go down for two hours, anything is possible. I will tell you, I went to the movies last week for the first time in a year and a half. How long has it been? Longer? And when the lights went down, you could hear the happy sigh in the crowd. I am not joking. Yeah, I feel that every time I go. I can point to specific times that it's been more heightened for some reason, but I feel it at least a little bit every single time it happens. Was it when you took me to see Texas Chainsaw <laughs> for one of our first dates that we didn't know was a date? That was incredibly significant. So you can see, at least for me, how once the theater shuts down, that to me is the death knell here. Every exchange that happens from here on feels like the last time any of these characters will see each other. And it just underscores for me how it seems like it's never the right time for anyone. 
in Anarene to attempt anything. Lois makes that painful observation that it's terrible to only meet one man in your whole life that knows what you're worth. And she considers Sonny for a split second there, I think. But I think that's only because of his connection to Sam, what she sees in him that Sam sees in him. But what do you think it is that's built into this landscape or these people that makes it so that nothing nourishing or uplifting can take root in these liaisons? I truly believe that some places should not be inhabited. The land is telling you, don't stay here. And if you think about it in a larger sense, strikes never last long enough. And by strikes, I mean more like oil or mineral, you know, striking gold. And you just have to move on. You and I both know this. Where you were born does not have to be where you die. Make your own identity. Well, we're essentially at the end here. And by the end, there's literally nothing left for Sonny. There's no reason to stay. It feels like there's no reason to keep going. But somehow still, everyone entrusts everything to Sonny. So I think there's an obligation that he feels there. If he doesn't fill the void left by Sam, who will? So do you think Sonny is going to stay? I think so. He can't go into the military, which would be really the only other avenue. At best, and I mean at best, he gets on an oil gang and maybe gets to travel a little bit. That would be about it. Yeah, you know the old saying, become a tool pusher on an oil rig and see the world. Or at least Odessa. Well, actually, Texasville answers this question, as it turns out. Sonny will stay, just like Sam stayed, to take care of everyone. He'll grow into that role. But in the meantime, there's only one place for Sonny to go, and that is back to Ruth. And I'm sure that you have thoughts about this final confrontation and capitulation with her. How does this scene make you feel, especially being the last thing we see as it fades away? I'm left wondering whether she will essentially just become his mother at this point, because I don't know that they will have a relationship, a sexual one in the same way. What did you think? I think exactly what you think. Something has been irreparably broken, and this lifetime of disappointment and anger that pours out of her like a river before she then settles down again. Still just at 40 or so. I think nothing is ever going to be the same. I do think that they continue to provide something to each other that the other needs. Well, that's it. The end. But I do have a few questions for you before we get out of here. I wanted to ask you... Were there other little moments that we haven't gotten to that struck you? Things that are on the margins that we might have missed? So many things to mention. I've tried to fit a couple of them in already. Abilene and Sam staring each other down. Sam's trashy behavior line. But it's really just the sheer beauty of the filmmaking. I was not expecting all of those deep focus two shots. Like the back of Sam's head. And all of the wrinkles in his neck just from being in the sun day in and day out. Thank Orson Welles for that, because it was he that told Bogdanovich, if you want to get that, you have to shoot this in black and white. So that's the reason we have that beautiful composition. And another thank you to Orson Welles, that's all down to using Robert Surtees as the cinematographer. He had actually assisted Greg Toland for a bunch of his career, and so he learned from the best. I love the first time that Sonny and Ruth are together. Everything that we see on Ruth's face, that push in and push out that we've talked about, is just so beautiful. I think the one that gets me is the one that people don't talk about much. Sonny's dad at the dance. Of all the things that are in the margins like that, that one hits me the most. I feel in 10 seconds what all of Dennis Hopper's arc in Hoosiers makes me feel, for instance. And that's no slam on Hoosiers. That's just how great this tiny interaction is. Timothy Bottoms has that great character trait of turning his face toward the camera, which is, in effect, away from the person that he's in the scene with. And I don't mean that he looks into the camera. It's that edging away, that cheating away, because he cannot have that moment with the person that he's supposed to be having a moment with. Well, we've lost Sam. We've lost Billy. We've lost the movie theater. Is one death in this film, either literal or figurative, more significant than the rest for you? I think I got mad at you at one point. Yeah, I don't think. I know. Yeah, I, I did. Because I knew again that the death of Billy was coming. And it just makes me upset. 
though thank god they don't show the actual crash when he's killed what i realized though thinking about these three deaths we don't actually see them occur it's a bit like vagabond we see the last moments of the town but not its actual death we don't see when sam breathes his last breath or the same for billy but we see the effects of removing them removing the sense of life from the town it's impossible for me to say which is worse because i think they each break me for totally different reasons but i think you're really on to something here this idea that we don't ever completely see the end it's entirely symbolic of the town because the town never quite dies it somehow manages to keep going on however diminished it is so it's entirely appropriate that we never see their specific end because we're going to come back in 60 years and Anarene is somehow still going to be there. Now I see the word nostalgia associated with this film all the time. How do you define nostalgia when you think about it? Does this qualify as that, do you think? Well, I think about that line of Genevieve's, I'll be making cheeseburgers for your grandkids. It seems like nostalgia is sort of a last resort to cast bad memories in a good light because you've got nothing else good to compare it to. And again, when Lois tells JC that sex isn't magic, but the nostalgia part comes into play if you start to convince yourself that something magical actually happened rather than just a good moment. One of the descriptions of nostalgia that I always keep in my head is that it's a kind of longing for a time when your happiness was looked after. And I believe this to be somewhat accurate, and I think it's why I regard nostalgia as kind of a toxic impulse. I feel like there's too much abdication of personal responsibility built into that way of thinking for me to want to participate in it. But I'm not sure that that's what this film is engaging in, which is why I love it so much. No one's happiness is being looked after here exactly. This is about nostalgia the same way M.A.S.H. is a war movie or McCabe and Mrs. Miller is a western. We are not viewing Anarene through rose-colored glasses. What it comes down to is that we do our best, some of us make it out and some of us don't. And ultimately, where I come down is something that I heard from one of my other favorite Texans, Towns Van Zandt. Something he wrote helps me out in these situations when I focus on this idea, where you've been is good and gone, what you keep is the getting there. That's beautiful, definitely. And I don't think the film is engaging in nostalgia. I think the characters, some of them are. And I kind of go back to what I said. It becomes sort of a last resort, a way to look on the past in a way that is more helpful and happy than possibly what was happening at the time. Okay, then. Well, speaking of helpful and happy... How about a recommendation? Does that fit the bill here? It does not. <laughs> <laughs> because I picked another Larry McMurtry adaptation. This was the first one I saw of his, and it made a huge impression on me at the time. Can I guess? Yes. HUD. No. I still haven't seen HUD <sighs> all the way. It still makes a huge impression on me, and you're going to say yes when I say it, and that's Terms of Endearment. Oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah. From 1983. Directed, written, and produced by James L. Brooks. Adapted from Larry McMurtry's 1975 novel of the same name, so it came a few years after the film of this. It stars Deborah Winger, Shirley MacLaine, Jack Nicholson, Danny DeVito in a great part, Jeff Daniels, and John Lithgow. The film covers 30 years of the relationship between Aurora Greenway and her daughter Emma, and it is an extremely close and sometimes fraught relationship as their circumstances change over the years, but they are each other's touchstones and soulmates. You've seen Terms of Endearment, oh, yeah. surely. Surely everybody has, pun intended. It can still make me laugh and cry a whole lot, and I've seen it a number of times. So how about your recommendation? My recommendation this time is The Paper Chase from 1973, and that's directed by James Bridges and starring once again Timothy Bottoms, Lindsay Wagner, and John Houseman. It's about a first-year law student at Harvard, his experience with a demanding professor, and then his relationship with said professor's daughter. 
The connection here is obviously Timothy Bottoms. I don't think he is celebrated nearly enough and he deserves a resurgence, which I am going to lead single-handedly. It's one of a handful of movies that I think really influenced my ideas as a young person about what ivy-covered college life is really all about. The classroom sequences are excellent, and then the complicated nature of the relationship between Wagner and Bottoms was also one of those first times that I remember feeling, this is what adults do, and I really want to be a part of this world. And then enough cannot be said about John Hausman's performance here, which he won an Oscar for. He is so forbidding and imperious and bitterly funny all at once. Highly recommended. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Terms of Endearment and The Paper Chase. And that brings us to the end of episode 163. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, well over a hundred of those by now, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Leanne Kubich, Terry Osterhout, Jay McIntyre, the Fine Gentleman at Fuds on Film, Spencer Seams and the Shoot the Piano Player podcast, and Cinema Renoir Film School. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show at Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally... You can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>